A few years ago, around the time of Twitter's IPO, I noticed what I thought was an odd coincidence. Its chief engineer had studied birds. Specifically, he'd studied the auditory cortex of zebra finches. I thought that was pretty funny for an engineer, especially because Twitter's mascot is that little blue bird. I forgot about it until a couple of years ago when I noticed another bird brain scholar in the top echelons of tech. This person had been hired by Elon Musk, the entrepreneur behind Tesla and SpaceX, to join his new company, Neuralink. Neuralink is a very secretive, futuristic company which is trying to supercharge the human brain. This all sounds pretty obscure. You'd think studying bird brains wouldn't be too relevant to studying human brains or figuring out social media. Right? That's why I remembered it. It just felt so random. But now here were two. So one day when I was a little bored, I just tried typing zebra finch in the names of several big tech companies into Google. And what did you find? I found quite a few employees who knew a lot about zebra finches. That was at companies like Intel and Apple and Google, too. I was surprised. Okay, hang on, Sarah. I'm Googling this. The zebra finch is the most common estrilled finch of central Australia and ranges over most of the continent, avoiding only the cool, moist south and tropical far north. Zebra finches are loud and boisterous singers. So what's the connection here? Well, that's where I jumped into the reporting process. Our goal is to figure out why tech companies are hiring bird brain experts, and this little quest has taken us to college campuses around the country. We visited several university labs. Some smelled better than others. We heard a lot of bird song. So this is our guy. And so they're, they're very light, uh, but super active. How big would you say that thing is? It's like So a, they're about 15 grams okay. in total weight. They're mostly feathers. That's Tim Achi, a neuroscientist and assistant professor at Boston University, showing us a zebra finch in his bird lab and telling us about his research on bird brains. He's running some pretty extraordinary experiments. Oh, no, but the, uh, the, the implant. Ah, so this is actually just a lens. Okay. And so if you look at the top, so you see that little black thing that's sticking yeah. up? So that's a lens. If you look down it, you could see the brain, but there's not, probably not enough light getting down there that you could actually wow. see it. And it turns out what Tim's learning about the brains of these tiny birds is of great interest to the world's largest tech companies. I'm Brad Stone. And Sarah McBride. And I'm Ashley Vance. And you're listening to Decrypted. So guys, tell me a little bit more about Tim Achi and his, I'm sure, wonderfully smelling lab out in Boston. Yeah, well, Tim's lab was one of the key stops on our trip. Tim took over a Boston University lab from Tim Gardner, the guy who left to work for Elon Musk at Neuralink. Tim Achi is a 40-year-old guy with black frame glasses who throws in plenty of references to Portlandia and other TV shows when he chit-chats. On his office wall, he's got a print of voltage traces called Five Seconds of Donkey Kong. Now we're talking about something I'm familiar with. So what, what's the connection here? It turns out that that old 80s video game became the subject of a famous neuroscience research paper. There's one other thing you should know about Tim. He has a giant zebra finch tattoo on his right forearm. Brad, how familiar are you with zebra finches? Well, Ashley, other than my very brief Wikipedia search just now, other than small birds that sing a lot, I would say not very familiar. They are very cute little birds indeed. They're about four inches long. The males have orange cheeks and black and white striped feathers across their chests, hence the name. They're super easy to breed and they chirp a lot. 
Here's Tim's interpretation. So how did Tim get into studying bird brains? He took a circuitous route into neuroscience. One thing I found interesting is he started as an engineer working at a company that helped factories to automate. His job was teaching robots how to sort stuff, everything from car parts to gizmos for circuit boards. It was just astounding to me how difficult it was to get things to do this. And these were tasks that, you know, uh, children do. It really put in my mind the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of the the things that, that children can do almost effortlessly and without almost any training are incredibly impossible to get uh, artificial systems to do or take an enormous amount of thought. Okay, so I think I understand. Tim was curious about why a certain task is so easy for a child, but so difficult for a robot. Yeah, that's exactly it. So after a detour or two, Tim ended up studying neuroscience at Harvard. And that's where he discovered zebra finches. Now he's teaching at BU and doing his own research. One thing Tim focuses on is how zebra finches learn to sing. Tim described his study of zebra finches as more of a means to an end. I don't, you know, really think of myself or or care too much about, you know, songbird neuroscience specifically. Uh, I take it as a as a way to investigate general principles and mechanisms in neuroscience and how brains function generally. So Tim is saying that he studies these teeny tiny zebra finch brains because he thinks it will give us insight into the way human brains function? That's right. Researchers study all different kinds of animals for all different kinds of purposes. But in this case, they're trying to learn more about the human brain. Seeing how birds learn to sing, for example, can provide insights into how we learn things. So I think that, you know, the songbird is one of those systems that we probably understand the best uh, in terms of the different brain regions that are involved, in terms of the roles of those different brain regions. And so I think that we can ask very, very precise questions in the songbird about the interaction between brain activity and behavior. Sarah, you started out by saying that studying the brains of zebra finches are somehow interesting for tech companies. So if Tim studies the birds because there are connections between bird brains and human brains, are there also connections between bird brains and computers? Absolutely. But to understand it, I need to explain a little bit more about Tim's research. When we met him in Boston before we went into the room with the real-life zebra finches, he played us one of his best songbird clips. And so that's what the song sounds like. Okay, so that's one. Yeah, so that's what the that's what the ze- this particular zebra finch uh, sings. All of them have slightly different songs. That sounded like a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, it sounded a little like Woody Woodpecker, right? Uh, but that, but that is actually uh, that is actually what it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we listen to these all day long. <laughs> Tim told us while male and female zebra finches can chirp, only male zebra finches sing. Even if their song is so short, it doesn't sound like much of a song to us. Tim studies the brains of the baby birds as they learn. Here's a baby zebra finch trying to imitate his dad's song. He makes an early effort and then a better one a month later. Okay, so this is the father. And what, this one? This one? Well, okay, and then we can do the, the middle one where he's not quite got it right. Okay. And then this is the one where you mimicked it. Yeah. That's pretty good. (laughs) 
So, Ashley, I'm kind of praying that in these experiments, he's not hurting these beautiful teeny tiny birds. I mean, basically what he does is, is they take these birds that have been injected with a benign virus. The virus makes their brains produce a type of protein that causes individual neurons to light up when they fire. They glow green and red. To see them in action, Tim and the grad students in his lab perform very delicate surgery on the zebra finches to implant tiny, tiny microscopes in their brain. Tim showed us one bird who had gone through this procedure. That's a male zebra finch, and so I believe on his head, he's got one of these windows that I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this guy has already been through the procedure in which uh, we inject the viruses into the brain, and then we've put a, 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 a window or a lens on top so that we can actually image through it. And he's going to get a microscope attached? He will eventually get a microscope attached. Mm-hmm. Sarah, that sounds completely crazy. Give, give us a better sense for what this looks like. So there are all these little birds hopping around with a tiny bit of their skull missing. And instead, they have a microscope there and a little hole where you can look in and see what's going on in their brain. And the microscope sits there for days, weeks, months at a time, looking at their neurons fire in in real time. And the birds are in their little cages. And then when you go into their lab, it's actually, it's pretty cool. There's all these wires going off these cages straight into like a data center where they store all of this information. And so basically you just get to, you just get to watch this bird's brain behave in real time and then go back and look through all the information. So Sarah, should we feel sorry for these birds? I didn't. They seemed really happy. They were hopping around. They were chirping. They were acting normal as far as they could tell based on the ones I saw without microscopes in their head. There really didn't seem to be too much difference. Okay, so how is all this useful for the neuroscientists? They look deep inside each bird's brain and they look to see which neurons are firing and for how long when, say, the bird is learning to sing. And they can make hypotheses on the relationship between different neurons. So that's actually a technique used pretty widely in science now on all kinds of animals. While we were visiting Tim in Boston, we also stopped by a mouse lab that does something similar and a fish lab. In each of the labs, the neuroscientists are are studying other things as well, like how animals move, what happens in their brains when they make decisions. For example, at the Roland Institute in Cambridge, we saw a couple of video games that mice play using tiny joysticks sized for a mouse paw. Wow. So how do they, how do the mice get the quarters in the video game machine? (laughs) They're highly trained. I see. And, and the video games tells us what? It tells us how they're making decisions. Exactly. So the, the mice are a lot like the birds. They have bits of their, their skull have been removed and and we're watching their brains in real time again. And, And so you watch them play these video games and you see how they adapt. Sometimes they get different rules and, and you see how the, the mouse learns the rules of the game and they move this joystick around in one of them to find the edges of a box. And if the mouse is successful, it gets a little bit of sugar water. And, and all this time, the scientists are sitting there seeing which parts of the brain light up and, and how the mouse reacts to these different situations. So what is it about this research that tech companies find so interesting? One reason is that these scientists are working with tons and tons of data, and that's something that every tech company needs to do. And also, it's to do with artificial intelligence, the field that has computer systems mastering tasks that require human traits, like visual perception or decision-making, maybe how to identify a cat. 
That sounds simple, but it's actually way more nuanced than a traditional computer task and very hard for a computer to master. So there's this one school of thought that AI moving forward should loosely be modeled after the human brain. The AI systems we have today are still basically number crunching systems. They're doing tons of statistical calculations. And if we want to get to this this future that Sarah's talking about, where you actually have decision making and much more sophisticated thought, the the ideas that we could borrow from the human brain and, and maybe have something that's way more flexible than what a computer could do. And so presumably, since we can't cut open human skulls and make people play video games against their will, the, the zebra finch brains are our first step. Yeah, the, exactly. Human brains are a little too big and complicated to study in the kind of detail we can get from animals right now. They're smaller, easier to study, and obviously the ethics of studying a living human brain, very tricky. So I'm so curious about why zebra finches have become the bird to study and what exactly tech companies are doing with all this. Let's get to that after the break. Okay, Sarah and Ashley. So before the break, you explained how neuroscience is starting to inform the way tech companies design AI systems. So I guess this means it's a very good time to be a neuroscientist. Yeah. So these these people that used to be in academia or, or working at universities for their whole career are now finding tons of job opportunities in Silicon Valley. Companies like Google and Apple and Amazon are all snatching them up, including a lot of these zebra finch experts that we've been talking about. Intel, the company that probably makes the chips in your laptop, won't say exactly how many people it has working in AI, but it's a lot and many of them have this expertise. Intel helps its customers soup up machines to get them to behave smarter and in more human-like ways. That could mean maybe working with a self-driving car maker, and that car maker needs its vehicles to make lightning-fast decisions on the road, and they have to be good decisions. A promising way to do that is to build computer systems that imitate how the human brain works. In a human brain, the systems are called synapses and pathways. In a machine, they're called neural networks. We talked to Amir Khosrowshahi, the chief technology officer for Intel's AI products division. These neural network architectures have been wildly successful in the, since around 2011. Um, in, a wild, in, in a wide I mean, uh, range of areas, including vision, um, speech, uh, navigation, reinforcement learning, things that are uh, kind of related to neuroscience because these are also tasks that humans do pretty well. Amir is a computational neuroscientist by training. He got his PhD at UC Berkeley, and he ended up hiring another Berkeley PhD grad, Tyler Lee, to work at Intel on helping virtual assistants understand human speech. Tyler spends a lot of time thinking about how speech works in different environments, like cars. Knowing context, simple things like if the speaker is the driver or the passenger, makes it a lot easier to understand what they're saying. For example, a driver is more likely to ask about directions. Some of the work on context he does actually reminds him a lot of his PhD work, studying, you guessed it, zebra finches. The bird has to recognize what type of call is being being emitted by, by the one it's hearing. 
and then then it can go ahead and recognize who that bird is. Is that is that a, a family member, a mate? You know, is it another zebra finch or a different type of bird? Should I be concerned? The vocal identification is one thing where it's it's context specific, and recognizing the context would let you uh, better understand the vocal signature. Mostly, Tyler says his studies help him with big picture stuff. Neuroscience teaches you how to think about complex problems of signal processing, where I take some something from the world that comes in, it's an image, it's, uh, it's sound, and it's, it's noisy, and it's high, very, very high dimensional, and I have to like break it down into, into features that I can then use to, to like do something with, solve a task with. That's what the brain does all the time, and that's sort of the abstract level. Tyler's boss, Amir, says he's no zebra finch chauvinist. He's got people on his team who've studied flies, rats, locusts, even worms. These very simple organisms exhibit really complex behaviors that are still a challenge for us to to simulate in silicon using our neural networks and machine learning. So even a simple worm, inchworm, uh, is a really complicated robotic uh, machine that's really miraculous. So we, we look for inspiration from simple to uh, humans. So I guess Intel and all these other companies must be developing products which incorporate AI developed with the help of these zebra finch experts. Besides commands to self-driving cars, is there any area where knowing a lot about sound itself is helpful? And I guess when, when do all these years of studying zebra finches finally pay off? You could think about features on your phone or computer that let you unlock the device with your voice or stuff like noise reduction in phone calls and on video calls. I can't wait till I can sing a little uh, zebra finch song and my phone unlocks. But anything beyond gadgets? Yeah, absolutely. Animal neuroscience connects to a lot of fields, especially health. Some work could be relevant for Parkinson's research because animals help researchers figure out how to stop tremors. They also help in areas like how to handle prosthetic limbs. Outside of medicine, the work might grow even more futuristic. Mm, this is where we get into dystopian scenarios, I suspect. What, what else? Exactly, like Neuralink. I mentioned that company earlier because Elon Musk had hired a zebra finch scholar, and it's one of the companies that we believe is working on very futuristic technology. Elon Musk keeps dropping hints on Twitter that the company's about to announce a big breakthrough. Nobody knows exactly what, but it's going to have something to do with brain-machine interfaces. So I'm trying hard not to think about some Star Trek episodes on this topic, which all ended quite badly. But help me understand, uh, Ashley, what a brain-machine interface is about. I mean, at its most basic level is this idea that you have a two-way interplay between humans and computers where you could actually funnel information back and forth. We already have examples of stuff like this with implants that help people hear or stop Parkinson's tremors. In this case, I think people are looking at much more futuristic applications where you might even have like a mesh that's attached to your brain and you could full-on download your brain to a machine or learn Japanese in five seconds. There's another company called Kernel that's in the same field. And like Neuralink, it's also very mysterious. And in some ways, that's kind of the best part. When we don't know exactly what they're doing, we can imagine all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, going back to Elon Musk, he, he's been talking about where Neuralink could go, maybe allowing people to have this kind of superhuman cognition where you could, you could think on par with a machine or certainly much better than we do today. That means basically stuff like you could download an entire foreign language directly into your brain or, or maybe instantly grab an encyclopedia. 
people like Timachi have been thinking about exactly these scenarios for years and can really nerd out on the possibilities. Tri trivia would be over. Yeah, Jeopardy would not be a thing anymore. Um, Alex Trebek would be out of a job. He has some more serious thoughts on the topic, too. I find the idea that we could, you know, pretend one day in the maybe distant future, you know, really write information directly into the brain uh, that we could actually have a, a high bandwidth way uh, uh, to get really sci-fi about it, kind of a matrixy like. Um, I think that would be amazing. We are nowhere near knowing anything about how to get there. We are, can barely even scratch the surface of what that would be like. But I, you know, in terms of fantasy, uh, what would I like to do one day? I would love to be able to contribute in even a small way to figuring out how we can uh, have this sort of bi-directional interface with the brain. Oh my God. So uh, yeah, this is wild. The evocation of the matrix does not make me feel more comfortable about this. What do the skeptics say about, about it all? Well, there are plenty of skeptics out there. I checked in with one scholar at the University of Chicago, Dan Margoliash. The idea that we're going to reverse engineer the not reverse engineer, uh, forward engineer the, the the human brain so we can download tons of material into it very rapidly and I don't know what pick up a language overnight or something. I it's it's the way people make progress is to dream, and so I'm I'm a scientist. I'm 100% for that. But uh, that really sounds more fantastical than uh, realistic. Okay. It, it ignores it ignores uh, uh, the remarkable ways we learn, and it ignores our evolutionary history. Um, so I would I would uh, it'll be interesting to see what progress they make for sure. So, guys, uh, the the possibility of superhuman cognition sounds appealing. Um, you know, if it were up to you two and and somebody was offering to to put a chip or an apparatus in, into your brains like they're doing to the to the poor little zebra finch, would you do it? I mean, you know, in some sense, we're already doing this stuff today. If you have an implant to help you hear or things to stop Parkinson's tremors. Yeah, if I had one of those conditions, I would absolutely get one of these implants and, and supercharge myself when you start going into this this next wave of stuff it gets i think far more philosophical and complicated because you're talking about changing humans from what they are some sort of weird next step of evolution where we're kind of half man half machine um you know in some ways there's people i talk to like the guys at kernel who argue that this is the only way humans will be able to keep up with machines and, and we always hear about losing jobs to artificial intelligence and and seeing what humans can do going away and so you know if you're half and half you can you can keep up but maybe keep some of your humanness as well sarah what about cyborg sarah mcbride will we ever see <laughs> will we ever see that i already hate my cell phone so <laughs> i doubt it but um well, what about this idea of keeping up with robots and 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 you yeah know? there are people who think that ai could help us solve problems like climate change I think that's too optimistic. The funny part about doing the story for me was that that in the AI camp, you tend to have, I feel like, people who think the technology is really far along. You know, if you're talking about specifically computer scientists in the Silicon Valley 
kind of crew. Um, they're very impressed what they've come up with over the last few years. When we went to talk to all these brain researchers, the ones who are down in the muck, down at the the neurons, they seemed on the whole to me much more skeptical about when we would see huge breakthroughs. They seemed to think that a lot of this stuff was years and years away. And, and I felt like they had this sense of how complicated the brain really is and that unlocking its secrets is, is going to take a long but time. But given the fact that they are taking the first steps to what will ultimately be very transformative and challenging, controversial technology, Sarah, did you get the sense that they were wrestling with the ethical complications of their work? You know, a lot of them actually turned out to have studied philosophy at some point in their careers, which I thought was pretty interesting. And yeah, they talk about the decisions that a car maker might have to make. Is it more important to preserve the life of a passenger or a pedestrian, stuff like that? So yeah, they're thinking about these big problems. That doesn't mean they know how to answer them, though, any more than we would. But they say that it means these systems will be very human one day. Do they understand that they have now found themselves right at the center of this next wave in, in computing? I mean, they do to a degree. They're definitely excited. I mean, just in uh, very crass terms, a lot of these people get much better job offers than they right. would have in the past. Uh, you know, there used to be far less neuroscience graduates. It wasn't that appealing of a field. We didn't know much about the brain. All these promised breakthroughs weren't happening at all. And, and now you can go to a university, do this amazing work, or if you kind of get tired of that or you want to poke around somewhere else, you can go work for one of these tech companies and get paid, I don't know, like 10 times what right. you would make at, at one of these labs. Well, to bring this all the way back to the beginning, Sarah, is it too early when I talk to Alexa or Siri or Google Voice to thank the little zebra finch? Can we, can we see any of the zebra finch and that research in today's AI? We see some of it already in things like voice recognition and making better audio quality. But I think some of the biggest stuff is uh, yet to come. And we can always check in with Timachi. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We always like to know what you think of the show. You can write to us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net. Or I'm on Twitter at McBrideSG. And I'm at Bradstone. And I'm at ValleyHack. And please help us spread the word about our show by leaving us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari and Lindsay Cradowell. Our story editor was Aki Ito. Thank you also to Anne Vandermeer and Emily Buso. Francesca Levy is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week.